0: Welcome to the Virtual Vascular Podcast. My name is Petr Zlatanvic. Today, we're going to dive deeper into the Virtual Vascular Textbook, chapter dedicated to the carotid and arthritomy techniques and asymptomatic carotid artery disease. We are pleased to have Professor Gabor Menhey and Professor hans Henning Eckstein with us today so we can find out more about their expert opinion on such an interesting topic. Professor Menhey works at the Department of Vascular Surgery, University of Pech Hungary, and Professor Hans-Hennig Eckstein at the Department of Vascular and Vascular Surgery at the University Hospital, Technical University of Munich, Germany. So both have an, a key interest in carotid artery disease management. Thank you all for joining us. So I'd like first to start with uh, Professor hans henrich Eckstein to ask you, so during your, uh, your long career as a vascular surgeon, what are, in your opinion, are the three most important advances in the treatment of carotid artery disease?
1: Well, thank you. Thank you, Peter, for, for inviting me. And thanks also to the ESVS to uh, bringing this project really to life. Congratulations. So the three most um, important advances, well, it's that's not that easy to say. But first of all, I think that carotid surgery and the whole carotid treatment, also endovascular and conservative, has been uh, investigated in lots of Investigator-initiated randomized controlled trials, and we tried to bring the data together in, let's say, one one trial, one big trial with the Carotid Stenosis is Collaboration. And I think we some of those papers that came out had a major impact also on the on the recent guidelines. So these sort of evidence-based carotid medicine, if you want to say, is really really precious for vascular surgeons all over the world. The second point, and that comes from the very early randomized trial, is that we learned uh, that early carotid anorectomy, rather than stenting, mostly carotid anorectomy, prevents strokes because we have learned, and this comes from nested and ECST trials, so the early symptomatic trials that in the early period after a carotid related ischemic event, the uh, natural history is in a way that more strokes occur, especially on the first days, on the first weeks. And this is also true in times where medical treatment has improved. So that was very important for us. And this is now a strong recommendation in uh, to, to do, as soon as possible after the patient has stabilized uh, and not to wait, let's say, for four weeks, which which was the case a couple of years ago. And the third point is that we know far better how effective best medical treatment for many, and I would say the majority of asymptomatic carotid patients is, especially patients with 50 to 70% stenosis, stable plaques, et cetera. On the other hand, we also have learned which uh, patients with asymptomatic disease might be at an increased risk of uh, late strokes. So three very important uh, points, I would say.
0: Thank you, Professor Ekstrand. These are really uh, important three points that uh, all of the, us should uh, have in our minds. And thank you for that. And I would like to move uh, to Professor menhey with the next question. Uh, and with the modern uh, medical treatment during the last two decades, do you think that the surgical Endovascular, uh, or endovascular treatment of patients with asymptomatic carotid artery disease still plays an important role in this cohort of patients. Uh, thank you,
2: Petar. Welcome to everyone. I'm, I'm, I feel also very honored to be part of this fantastic uh, project. So my brief answer to your question is that yes, in selected patients, as Professor Ecksteiner has, has already touched this topic, uh, as we know, uh, there are large trials, uh, acres ECST-1, uh, which have confirmed benefit uh, that uh, CEA can halve the stroke risk after five years. And uh, risk reduction is about 5%, which persists for even 10 years. It is understandable, ho- uh, however, that there is some criticism, that these are old studies. And uh, the systematic reviews reported a declining stroke rate on patients on best medical treatment. Uh, there's no level of evidence at the moment for this uh, question, uh, but we hope that ongoing trials like uh, uh, Crest 2 could bring uh, some clearer light to this topic. However, there is already a trial, this is the ACST1 trial, which showed a, a long term follow up analysis on. Uh, quite a lot of patients from Germany and uh, from uh, Sweden who were on triple medication. Uh, Even after 15 years, uh, CEA can halve the stroke rate comparing to best medical treatment. On the other hand, there's growing evidence. There's a certain group of patients, the high-risk stroke patients, uh, who can benefit from CEA. Who are these patients? That's the question. In 2017, uh, ESVS guideline was the first to... to propose clinical and imaging uh, characteristic for higher risk of stroke, like silent silent or plaque lucency, uh, contralateral stroke, and so on. The degree of stenosis is not on the list. And the reason a meta-analysis suggests an increasing stenosis is an important prediction of stroke, but only with high-risk features. So uh, it can be a really uh, good plan uh, to develop a validation. So in conclusion, I can say that in selected asymptomatic carotid patients, the intervention is appropriate.
0: Thank you very much uh, that you highlighted this uh, important uh, message to the, the audience that the selection is very uh, much uh, essence uh, for the treatment of these patients. So now moving on to the Professor Ekstan. So nowadays with a in the improvement of surgical techniques. Do you think that a 3% 30-day stroke or death rate threshold for performing CEA or CAS in asymptomatic carotid artery disease should be reduced?
1: Well, thank you, Peter. I guess you are alluding to the discussion that took place also in the ESVS guideline committees. Uh, 3% is still is too high. Uh, in, in the German Austrian guidelines from 2020 and the European Stroke Organization guidelines in 2021, we uh, established a 2% stroke and death rate within the hospital stay. And so, and this this is all the difference between ESVS and the other guidelines, uh, because if you realize that let's say 25% of all strokes occur after hospital stay, but within 30 days, then you come again to a range of two, two and a half or three percent. So what we have to also to see is if it is true that the natural history of asymptomatic carotid stenosis is really associated with a just one percent stroke risk per year under best medical treatment, of course, then three percent might be really too high because what we are doing is a true, uh, completely preventive procedure. Patient is without any symptoms, it's just an investment in the future, more or less. So it is crucial that everything should be done to lower the stroke and death rates. And if I look at my own um, experience here in Munich with more than 2,000 carotid surgeries over the last 15, 16 years, we are now able to show that, and we will talk about that a little bit later, that local local anesthesia and intraoperative completion uh, studies at least are associated, I don't wanna go too far, uh, but uh, they are clearly associated with lower stroke and death rates. And now we have a in-hospital stroke and death rate of 1% maximum, maybe a little bit less. So I think, and this this is also true for many, many other institutions. So we should be clear about the preventive effect of sending or surgery in asymptomatic patients and we should really do everything to lower uh, our stroke and death rates.
0: Thank you for your wonderful answer and for pointing this out. So, uh, Professor uh, Menhei, uh, in your opinion, uh, what is the annual hospital or individual surgeon CEA volume needed to maintain the competence and safety?
2: Oh, in this field, the data are really conflicting. Most studies, including systematic reviews and meta-analysis, report inverse relationship between surgeons or hospital volume and CEA uh, outcome. Uh, However, the threshold seems to be variable. Uh, For instance, uh, in the German recommendation, recommends performing a cell only in centers who do more than 20 CEA per year. At the same time, the Vascular Society of Great Britain and Ireland recommended a couple of years ago 50 operations per year. But this threshold went down to 35 patients uh, just recently because of the decline in the number of operations in the UK. So it seems to be that uh, temporal changes in, in the vascular workload can influence recommendation. So I would say that uh, nowadays we can't do a real, re- can't make a real recommendation
0: in this field. Yeah, I would tend to agree as well, since these numbers are quite different and different expert opinions. So Professor Eckstein, just to continue on your previous talk. So should uh, lo- local regional anesthesia be preferred over general in the CEA patients?
1: Well, uh, if I look at my notes, there's just one word. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm a I'm a strong not believer, but convinced that uh, local anesthesia is superior in uh, some aspects. And I, I've learned that also because I was trained in, uh, to perform an under general anesthesia. And the, and the main points are that you have a more or less 100% or perfect neurological control all the time. You don't have to wait, um, as it is the case sometimes in patients under general anesthesia. So we realize immediately when something goes wrong. So is it a sort of clamping, ischemia, then you can put a shunt in, or did something happen centrally? then we can perform directly in angiography, et cetera. So the, the neurological control uh, is perfect. You don't need any uh, EEG or SEP or something like that. This is number one. Uh, and the second one is not that good research, I would say, but that's my, uh, my experience that the blood pressure is stable all over the procedure. Under yeah, general anesthesia, I saw it so often that, especially in the wake-up phase of the patients, the blood pressure increased up to two hundred millimeters mercury or so, and uh, and of course we are not happy with that. Uh, is blood pressure rises have to be avoided, especially in the very early. After carotid reconstruction. So I think we have a perfect neurological control, we have a stable patients in terms of uh, circulation and blood pressure. And uh, what I also realized that the training is possible, which was some in the beginning, um, assessed critically by some that say we cannot talk freely and do that or do that so but it's not the case i never had any patient who complained about that and the vast majority of patients uh, would do it again if it's needed so to to have an operation under local anesthesia you need of course a very competent anesthesist to do that that's clear
0: yeah that is a wonderful point that you make so that you have the have a really nice team who is assessing continuously the neurologic uh, status of the patient so one uh... Maybe an interesting and provocative question for Professor Menhai So, does the severe, do you think that does the severe asymptomatic carotid stenosis, unilateral or bilateral, causes a cognitive impairment? And can carotid interventions either reverse or prevent the cognitive decline in these patients? Uh,
2: yes, uh, there are two parts of this question. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, there's a recent symptomatic review which concluded an association between asymptomatic carotid stenosis and cognitive impairment. However, it was unable to demonstrate that there is a causative association. Uh, On the other hand, many studies have evaluated the relationship between impaired cardiovascular reserve and severe asymptomatic carotid stenosis and demonstrated that uh, patients with severe asymptomatic carotid stenosis and impaired uh, CVR were more likely to suffer a cognitive impairment. The second part of the question, I can say that a systematic review assessed the effect of carotid intervention on post cognitive function. There was no major changes in the cognitive function in most of the patients. And there, there was another study, which is the ACST1 study, which performed a post hoc analysis of patients. And the CEA was associated with reduction in the late dementia versus BMT, it was not associated with reduction in late dementia versus best medical treatment. So in conclusion, we can say that at the moment, there's no real confirmation that the carotid endarterectomy can be or should be indicated for, cognitive, for the prevention of cognitive impairment in asymptomatic carotid patients.
0: Thank you. I think that's a very important message for our audience. And now one also interesting question for Professor Eckstein. Do you think that uh, if there is a role for a routine post-operative control ultrasound of uh, angiography and what actually do you use some kind of algorithm in your center regarding this?
1: Thank you for this important question. Again, the, the, the answer is yes, we are strong supporters of some kind of interoperative control, I just mentioned that we have the awake patients in more than 95% of the cases. So this is good, but this is does not mean that you have a morphological control. I was trained actually, uh, and that was more or less introduced by my mentor, Jens Aulenberg, many, many years ago in Heidelberg, that we performed C arm angiography. Uh, by puncturing the common carotid artery and performing an intraoperative angiography before the patient leaves the the OR. And of course, now we have far better angio machines and we have also ultrasound. And we uh, made a small trial comparing angiography and B-mode and duplex ultrasound. It's also published in the European Journal of Vascular and Vascular Surgery a couple of years ago. And we're able to show that uh, ultrasound is even more sensitive in finding also minor lesions. The crucial point, and this is really not fixed yet, when should you re- reopen the artery? <laughs> and Wonderful. When, when can you leave that alone? So um, we tried to uh, to have an, sort of an alter- algorithm where we defined major Uh, lesions um, as compared to minor lesions. So for example, if you see a thrombus within the carotid bifurcation, uh, the answer is clear. It has to be removed of course, but not any minor lesion, especially in the external carotid artery has to be corrected. But this is still something that has to be established more. If you ask me to our current algorithm, We, as I said, we operate the patients under local anesthesia. So as long as the patient is fine, we don't expect any central problem, any embolism or so. So we just have to focus on the carotid bifurcation and that can be perfectly done within B mode and duplex ultrasound. And if that's fine, we do nothing more. If there are any problems, neurological problems, or the patient is... Well, not 100% okay, or the, the anesthetists say something is wrong, then we can do, of course, uh, immediate uh, intraoperative angiography as well to make clear whether the intracranial circulation is, so says so the, the carotid T, for example, and the brain major major uh, branches of the uh, middle cerebral artery are patent. So, But this is now less than, I would say, 5% of the cases, and all other controls are done by B-mode and double ultrasound.
0: Yeah, thank you, Professor Ekschein. That was uh, really interesting for me, and I suppose it's going to be an interesting algorithm for the audience as well. So uh, for Professor Mechai, one question. So what is, in your opinion, the best way to manage patients with uh, more than 70% asymptomatic restenosis uh, after carotid endarterectomy?
2: Um, as far as I know, there's no uh, RCT which would uh, guide the answer for this question, and the data are controversial. But uh, we all know that uh, the stroke rate after a significant stenosis after uh, CEA is low, it's around five uh, percent. And if you if consider the, the rate of uh, reoperation, operation, uh, a second uh, operation on carotid artery, that uh, can be a not really big gain for this kind of operation. And uh, even there was a meta-analysis which showed that on patients who had restenosis, significant risk stenosis after CAS, a reintervention intervention would gain little benefit. Surprisingly, uh, many re-interventions are performed for asymptomatic significant risk stenosis, as we know from the data from the literature and uh, from registers, for instance. Uh, there's one thing which uh, need to be uh, mentioned that uh, if we do uh, redo operations or redo intervention, uh, there's no uh, clear difference in the outcome, whether we perform uh, CEA or, uh, or CAS. So, but in conclusion, I would say, and this is our practice as well in our institute, uh, asympt- asymptomatic symptomatic stenosis, even if it's a significant one, uh, can be managed
0: uh, quite safely with medical therapy. Thank you, Professor Menke. That was uh, really interesting to hear. Uh, Professor Akshain, so th- actually the debate surrounding the long term results of aversion versus conventional CEA continues. And so, what it, what are the pros and cons of each technique? And what is your personal strategy when performing CEA?
1: Personally, I'm a, a strong supporter of eversion and anorectomy. And I'm doing let's say more than 95% of the cases by aversion endorectomy. and just if I need to put a shunt in immediately. So I know it's an unstable patient or with a thromb- flotating thrombus or so, then I clamp it and then I, we make it a direct um, inc- incision and put a shunt in first and then doing the enderectomy with a conventional patching and a conventional um, endorectomy. But for all other cases, aversion uh, is at least in my experience, a, a good technique. And there are two reasons. It, um, it is a bit faster than <laughs> conventional endorectomy, the patching. And it is almost impossible to create a a stenosis by yourself because the reinsertion is far away from the the maximum of the original stenosis. What is important is that you control the distal edge. uh, and therefore we are stronger supporters of intraoperative completion uh, imaging by what I just mentioned in the question before. If you look at the literature, I think, I'm not sure whether there's really a strong debate about eversion uh, or conventional enderectomy. Uh, we know that on the long run, the results and the outcomes are pretty much the same. And I think it's far more important to have a standard technique uh, in your department or for yourself and to be self-critical, to control yourself et cetera, and then it doesn't make a big, a, a huge difference. Of course, in very elongated cases, uh, e- eversion uh, comes with the shortening of the artery, et cetera. There are some technical points, but uh, if you look at the, at the literature, there are some randomized trials from the uh, early, early 2000 years, from the Car group, from Italy, uh, no no major
0: differences between both techniques. Thank you. That's very important to know. So, Last question is for uh, both of you. As you know, the latest ESVS guidelines for the management of carotid and vertebral disease have just been released online. So what are, in your opinion, the main new recommendations in this new uh, guideline that will impact our current clinical practice? Professor Menheim, maybe you can start a bit.
2: Uh, I think uh, one of the most important issues is the preoperative, perioperative antiplatelet therapy. Uh, so, so the, com- the combination antiplatelet therapy is uh, recommended even before performing uh, carotid intervention, and after that, which uh, I think it's it's very important because it can decrease the uh, risk of post-operative stroke rate. And another important issue might be that uh, the timing of uh, carotid interventions on pay- in patients undergoing. Uh, IV thrombolysis before the intervention. And the recommendation said that uh, this the intervention should be delayed uh, six days after the uh, thrombolysis because uh, there are data which shows that uh, if you perform uh, an intervention after thrombolysis, the uh, stroke rate is significantly higher. So it's also a very important recommendation, I think. I feel that uh, the monitoring uh, and quality control after carotid interventions. Uh, I mean, the recommendation about this topic is also very important in, in and uh, can make a big impact on, on future uh, practice, which was mentioned by Professor Eckstein uh, previously, that uh, duplex ultrasound and completion angiogram and angioscopy can, can associate it with uh, reduction in per- stroke, and it's very important. It's uh, it, the, the guideline uh, uh, stresses of this of this very important findings. And one more thing I should mention is that uh, if the preservative stroke develops, the recommendation of the current slide dances there is an urgent need for diagnostic imaging. I think it's also
1: uh, an important recommend,
0: new recommendation. Thank you, Professor Menheim, and you Professor Eckstein, what would you outline?
1: Well, I think it is important uh, to have an independent neurological assessment before any and after any carotid intervention. Uh, This alludes to the point that I said, be (laughs) self-critical, look at your outcomes. And if you have an independent neurological assessment before and after, you can be sure that your data are more or less correct. Uh, I still find it very helpful to have the subgroup of patients with asymptomatic carotid stenosis um, to be defined who m- would, who might benefit from a carotid intervention. In as- I'm talking about asymptomatic patients. That was the case also in or uh, um, already in 2017, but it's it's a, again within the guideline, and this is important. And my last point is that. Um, Protocols for blood pressure control after surgery or stenting within the hospitals are very, very important.
0: So thank you very much for a very interesting discussion on asymptomatic carotid artery disease. Lastly, uh, I would like to take a moment to introduce a new feature, which some of you might have already noticed, and that is called the e-libraries topics of the month where we announce the new chapter of the virtual vasker and add great additional videos and podcasts from the e-library. This email goes out to all ESVS members, so if you are not a member yet, subscribe now and don't miss out on a great educational content. Okay, thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks a lot.